Hey, this is John. Let's Talk Native is now on Patreon. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash let's talk native. We will be producing exclusive content for our Patreon supporters. Thanks for checking us out. Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. We highlight the voices of Native activists, writers, poets, artists, thinkers, and musicians who are fighting for the rights of Indigenous people all over Turtle Island. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. In this moment of historical change and social justice, our voices matter now more than ever before. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Say hello and welcome to the program. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Um, look, I've got to talk about something, a, a conflict that is really brewing and not sure that it uh, that it ha- has a real smooth um, uh, solution ahead of it yet. So um, let me let me explain. Look, uh, um, uh, several weeks ago on my New York show, Regan and I uh, talked about the the problems that the uh, Mi'kmaq uh, fishermen are facing up in Nova Scotia and some of the uh, the racism that they're facing. And this is a follow-up on, on what we talked about then. So let me, let me recap. The, the, the Mi'kmaq have had a Canadian Supreme Court ruling that acknowledged that they have, um, uh, that their rights, their treaty rights uh, are, are valid. <laughs> uh, now, again, I want to be careful. The Supreme Court didn't, didn't give them rights. It acknowledges that they have the right to um, to maintain their traditional uh, fishing rights um, and to continue to fish uh, freely to what they call uh, in pursuit of a moderate livelihood. And I say that because that word moderate becomes a, a kind of a, a, a big sticking point. So this is a this is a, a court ruling that goes back several several decades, and. It has become a point of contention because the Canadian uh, fisheries, uh, fisheries Ministry has um, uh, attempted to regulate what the what commercial uh, fishermen can and can't do, and so it leaves a um, a separate set of rules uh, uh, or or a lack of rules to apply towards uh, towards towards native uh, fishermen, and. This has caused a bunch of racial tensions. So the conflict that is, that is going on today um, really became heightened almost a month ago. In, in September, back in September, around the 21st, around the 20th of, of September, the uh, Mi'kmaq chiefs 
basically met with the uh, fisheries minister uh, after a bunch of white fishermen pulled up almost 400, 350, almost almost 400 lobster traps that were uh, the, the property of Mi'kmaq uh, um, fishermen. And they seized them. And, you know, allegedly some of them were, were damaged as well. And the RCMP were there and, and, and actually just let them do it. They, they knew what they were doing and they just allowed it to happen. Now, the position that the white fishermen are taking is that these lobster traps are not supposed to be in the water because of the regulations that, that they have to abide by. But they're just they're refusing to acknowledge that the, the, the Mi'kmaq have treaty protections and they have, they have rights that are laid out in treaties, recognized by their, the Canadian Supreme Court and acknowledged by Ottawa and, and, and the Prime Minister and the whole bit. But in this situation, because the RCMP just let them do it, that emboldened the, um, all these, these white fishermen to say, obviously what we're doing is okay, otherwise the police would have stopped us. So they became this almost this vigilante force that uh, that they felt were, was validated by the inactivity of the RCMP and other uh, other you know, law enforcement agents. So so they just went about um, doing this. Now, the Nova Scotia premier who says that the province recognizes the the treaty rights of the Mi'kmaq, although <laughs> they say, but the nature and extent of those treaty rights is um, is unclear. So. Even as they they attempt to uh, to claim to recognize some of our distinction, some of uh, the the rights that we never gave up to to Canada or the United States, but when, even as they attempt to do that, they make it they they muddle it by saying, "Yeah, we recognize your treaty rights, but we don't know what they are." I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. So that's that's back. Um, and that was reported in uh, in the media on September 21st. The, on the 22nd, uh, the fisheries minister, uh, Mr. Bernadette Jordan, released a statement saying that the Mi'kmaq have a constitutionally protected treaty right. So again, not that they that it's a constitutional right, but it's it, but their rights are protected by the constitution uh, to fish in pursuit of a moderate livelihood. So that comes out after they they had these traps and then ordered that these these traps be uh, be released to them. Don't know to the extent that that it actually happened, but that's what was um, uh, that's what was ordered by the uh, the premier of uh, um, um even the Nova Scotia premier uh, um, premier was saying the same thing. So then you you get to this this debate about why the the um, non native fishermen are saying they have to they have to enforce um, these uh, fishing regulations themselves. They're saying that you know that allowing the native people to to um, catch lobster will will screw up the whole ecosystem and that it's going to it, it, in the end it's going to deplete the stock but here's the thing on september 25th uh the, the dalhousie university's marine affairs program said the um uh the contentious uh says that the the, the this whole idea that the uh um i gotta try to get this word now right the um I know this was going to be tough. Sepak Kanak Takik Mi'kmaq, that their fishery um, is isn't 
isn't likely to to impact negatively the 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 lobster stock. In fact, so this is a university whose whose area of study is marine life is uh, uh, it's who the fisheries go to for this information. They say that it's not likely to, to dent the lobster stock. They said it is not the environmental threat that it's being made out to be. So that's coming from a, a major university on the Canadian side who is, whose job it is to review and a- analyze um, the, the, fi- the fishing industry in, uh, in Canada. So, the claim by these uh, by all these white guys that that the native fishermen are going to screw up their uh, uh, their lobster stock doesn't really hold any water amongst the uh, the uh, the experts in the, in that field. So that's on on September twenty fifth. Now, as we get into um, uh, uh, it, it later on in the month and then in, into October, one of the things that's that what is clear is that. The way the media keeps saying this thing is that this whole conflict is um, that the the Canadian federal government is to blame for this whole conflict because they have not um, made clear that what um, treaty right, what these rights um, that are protected by treaty are. They won't recognize they won't even acknowledge that this is a racism issue, that that racism is behind uh, all of this, this, this conflict now. Again, up to this point, it was merely the the seizing of lobsters and the seizing of traps. But by the time you get into October, now you've got um, a boat that was destroyed. And this is on, on October 5th. A, a lobster boat was, was destroyed by a sus- suspicious fire. And it has taken uh, – nobody was arrested. There again, there's a lot of debate on how much investigation went into this. And this is again, this is October 5th. Now we're we're getting later into the month here, and there still seems to be no effort to stop the uh, the actions that these white white people are taking against the uh, against native fishermen. So uh, now we get into uh, October 13th. On the evening of uh, October 13th, a mob of between 100 and 200 all claiming to be fishermen, who knows if they really are, white fishermen, they went after what they, uh, what they call a, a lobster pound, which is a, a building where the, the caught lobsters are, are kept before they, they go to mar- market. And they destroyed um, uh, one of the vehicles. This was a, the, the Micmacs lobster pound. They went and they destroyed a vehicle, um, burnt it, uh, destroyed a van. They... Um, stole a bunch of the catch and they were threatening. And here's here again, the RCMP were right there. The, the, the police were right there. And rather than the police turning back the mob, telling them that what they're doing is unlawful, they were actually carrying the, the demands of these white, this white mob to the few, the, there was only a couple of uh, Mi'kmaq people that were inside the building saying, look, these are the conditions by which they're going to let you leave without being injured. I mean, they were literally negotiating for the mob. And, and of course the, 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 the native people inside are saying, no, we're trying to barricade. We're trying to protect our, you know, our catch. We're trying to protect our lives. They were trying to barricade. And, and this is, this is literally, um, um, the situation getting completely out of control and the RCMP. Now I got to say at this point, 
to the extent that the RCMP has had clashes with the Mi'kmaq, they have literally sent snipers in camo fatigues to surround Mi'kmaq when, they, when the Mi'kmaq were trying to stop oil exploration or gas exploration. So it's not like the RCMP doesn't have the resources to be very assertive and very aggressive to, to stop something that they, they deem a threat. But in this situation, they literally were accommodating this angry mob of people who were there to, to uh, basically assault these people and, and commit acts of violence, um, uh, you know, vandalism, theft, grand larceny, the, the, the whole bit. And said, and said the RCMP just made it sound like it was beyond their control, like, like they were out outnumbered. This is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police claiming that a mob of, of 100 to 200 white men were, were overwhelming them. And so rather than, than protecting the so-called rule of law or any of that stuff, they were protecting the rule of mob. I got to tell you, to me, this is democracy. And you, so all, the, all of you who want to tout the, 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 the wonderful attributes of democracy, when an angry mob can have their way not only with, uh, with the marginalized people, but even supposedly have their way with law enforcement, you know, th this is your this is your wonderful democracy that the U.S. and Canada tout as uh, as as one of their hallmarks of their, you know, of of their culture. All right. So again, in the next day on October fourteenth, uh, uh, Chief Michael Sack was assaulted. He was literally beat up and attacked by some of these uh, some of these these white fishermen. Now, again. Very little being done. Nothing. You know, there seems to be no uh, um, accountability, no reprisal, no consequence for the actions of these these guys. In the meantime, they've got people that are getting all over the media. They're on television. They're on CBC. They're on all of these you know these international networks, claiming that they are simply trying to enforce the the fishing regulations. But again, completely ignoring the fact that. Those regulations do not necessarily apply to people who've been fishing these waters who have a, a history that predates colonization. On, uh, so then on uh, October 17th, this is just uh, last Saturday, um, the lobster pound, uh, a pound that was um, uh, being attacked by this angry mob uh, was burnt to the ground. The, and and of course, between the uh, the day they they attacked the the pound on the thirteenth and, and and then till the seventeenth, the this angry mob had not only stolen, but they'd also killed, destroyed. They actually um, uh, poured paint thinner and a few other things uh, to destroy not ju not just kill the lobster, but torture them essentially, but also make it so that they, they couldn't be, they couldn't be marketed. They, they just make them go the ways. It reminds me of that huge mound that, that used to, you used to see in a photograph of all of the Buffalo skulls that were stacked up because people were killing Buffalo just as a means to harm the, uh, the native people whose, whose sustenance depended on that. This is tantamount to that. This is an angry mob of white people who are not being uh, having any law enforced against them that are basically having their way with a small group. And, and, and when I say small, again, I go back to this um, uh, Dalhousie University's Marine uh, um, Affairs Program, who, who, again, attest that there's that 
the 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 small amount of of lobster uh, fishing that that the Mi'kmaq would be uh, be involved in would not impact impact the uh, the lobster stock. It would not impact the environment. Um, but these guys just feel like we we can't allow them to to make a, an income. And the debate keeps going back and forth about what it means to say that the um, their treaties say they have the right to pursue a moderate livelihood because. This is an, kind of an interesting debate because white people want to decide what, what is acceptable for our moderate lifestyles. It reminds me a little bit, even on the, uh, on the U.S. side, there was a provision that they were trying to put into the tax code that said that, um, um, that we could not be held taxable for certain um, tribal benefits as long as they, didn't, um, they weren't extravagant. So again, white people get to decide what is extravagant for us. What is, what's an extravagant livelihood as opposed to a moderate livelihood? Because we can't let extravagance reach native people. That's, that is set aside for white people. Uh, you know, so you, between this, this interpretation of a Mi'kmaq treaty or native treaties in general and the way, you know, tax law or, or whatever else is, is, uh, uh, is created. There's always this idea that we've got to keep native people in check. So this word moderate, as it opposed to, uh, as it applies to the livelihood that the Canadian constitution, uh, these treaties and all these other things are supposed to protect it. It ends up being, um, debatable on what is considered a moderate livelihood. Do these, do these guys only have the right to, to fish for their own consumption? Or does livelihood mean something to sustain their families? Well, clearly it does. And so when you're going to have a situation where white people get to decide what is a moderate livelihood and by whose standards, because if they say, well, they're, they're native people, they don't need much. Yeah, they, they, for them, a moderate, for those people, a moderate livelihood would be X, Y, and Z. We're not going to compare it to, to our major fishing industries and, and what white people need to, um, to maintain a moderate livelihood. No, they actually want to categorize what it is that is considered a moderate livelihood by putting us into a context. Well, they're, they're, they're native people. They don't need much. So this ends up being the debate. And so when I, when I, when I see these stories that, that keep trying to say, well, the problem is the Canadian government is, uh, uh, is not, um, uh, you know, clearing up what the treaties mean. Well, it isn't for the Canadian government to decide uh, unilaterally what the treaties mean. It's actually up to us to decide because these treaties aren't giving us rights. These treaties acknowledge that we have, that we have the rights. So, by that definition, it isn't up to the Canadian federal government to say, okay, we're going to determine what, what we think. We're going to impose regulations that only allow you to have a moderate livelihood. We're not going to let you, let you guys become um, you know, affluent. We're not going to let you guys have extravagant lifestyles. We're only going to let you have a moderate livelihood. And, and, and see, that's the debate. That's, that's the debate that white people want to have. That's the debate that Canadians want to have as it relates to native, peop uh, native people in general, but certainly in this situation. It is, it is amazing because what is rarely being talked about in any of the Canadian media or on, even on the U.S. side is the, is the clear 
role that racism is playing here. This is a distinctly racist act that is that is uh, happening or acts that are happening against the, the Mi'kmaq here. And there's no other way to break it down. It You can't be any more clear in the fact that you've got white people who are committing acts of violence in terms of assaults, in terms of arson, in, in, and then, of course, acts of vandalism. And all of this, by any definition, would be considered terrorism because it's a, it's a whole idea of committing an act that not only affects the people you commit the act against, but the idea of committing an act that will put people in fear, that will create a change in behavior that goes beyond just the fishermen, but that native people themselves will, un will, will, will see what they, what they are up against in terms of the violence, in terms of the arson, in terms of the theft, in terms of the, the property damage. And I mean, and again, I go back to, to one of the, the, one of the earlier disputes when the RCMP were literally giving the demands of the angry mob to, uh, to the Mi'kmaq. They were saying, look, they're going to allow you to leave unharmed if you, I mean, the, under the threat of violence and physical, physical and, and possibly death, they were literally being told if you leave, if you abandon all of your, all of your catch, all of your equipment, abandon, and the building wasn't even theirs. It was a lease building. But if you abandon this building, we're going to let you leave with your lives. If not, the, and, and literally RCMP are not, other than trying to negotiate some time here, they are not charging anyone. Now, I will say, that supposedly, there is a, an arson investigation, and there may have been charges that have been uh, filed um, for the arson of the, uh, the destroying of the, uh, of the uh, lobster pond, uh, pound, I'm sorry, that was destroyed. But, the, you know, the crazy part is, that's probably going to be driven by more by the fact that it was a non-native property that was uh, that the arson was committed against because it was only a leased building. Now, I will say there there are non-natives that are supporting these, these fishermen. And, and in fact, one of the things that, that did happen is not only were was this angry mob going after the the um, the native fishermen, they were actually going after some of their customers. They were threatening them. There there was mobs that were showing up um, at at some of the uh, the buyers of of the Mi'kmaq lobsters. Um, there has there's an effort that is going you know in in many places where um, restaurants are saying you know what in solidarity with the Mi'kmaq we're, we're not going to serve we're taking lobster off our menu. They're in a way, in a way, that's a bit of a problem because it ends up being like throwing the baby out with the bathwater because nobody wants the fishing industry to end. Certainly, the the Mi'kmaq don't. They just don't want this this racism and these racist acts to continue. So, all of this is happening, and and while you you've got you know uh, Trudeau and you've got uh, you know the uh, you know the provincial. Um, uh, of officials, you've got the even the, the police, you've got the the fisheries minister, you've got all these people who are acknowledging, yeah, they do have a right to fish, but that isn't keeping at bay this ang this angry mob, and the angry mob continues to grow. And and I and I'm not, I don't know that we can honestly say that this this angry mob of white people are just fishermen. 
you know, as, as you look at what happens with this idea of white supremacy, white supremacy growing both on the U.S. And, and, and it's been there on the Canadian side. We've talked about that. If you ever want to go check out the, the video that Jake and I produced called This is Canada, it shows just the high level of racism that exists on the Canadian side. You know, I, I know generally, you know, people throughout the world think, oh, Canada, it's so nice. Well, it isn't so nice. And what's happening right now with the Mi'kmaq is, is an example of the overt racism that not only exists amongst some of the, uh, you know, the white supremacists in the country, but how law enforcement is complicit with that racism and complicit with that white supremacy and complicit with, with all of these, these, these acts of terrorism that are, that are being um, uh, you know, conducted against, uh, against a people who are really just trying to do what they have been doing for thousands of years. You know, seeking a harvest out of, out of the ocean, uh, they've been they've been catching lobster and and feeding their families with it. And in fact, the commercial um, uh, viability of these Mi'kmaq uh, um, fishermen has essentially been eliminated by you know, by either having their traps seized, destroyed, um, uh, stolen, uh, having their uh, all of their the inventory, all of their stock destroyed as, as it was uh, you know stored in this in this lobster pound, but but they've reduced their abilities to to um, to produce so significantly that all they've been able to do is is is, um, is is catch enough lobsters for their for their uh, for their own use for their their ceremonial use and that kind of thing, and you look I know people don't envision what native people, how much our traditional diets and how much, you know, some of our, the, 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 the lifestyles we've, we, we've developed, um, and how the sustainability of those lifestyles, how much they are part of our culture, but they are part of our culture for these people. Look, many of us don't have lobsters as a normal part of our, of our, of our lifestyles, but these, that's, that, that's not true for these people. The Mi'kmaq, this is part of their, their staple, their dietary staple. And to, to have that eliminated, not only as it relates to them having any commercial viability, but to even sustain themselves, it can't be more clear that what they're experiencing is overt racism that, and, and the actions that are intended to disrupt their lives, to drive them out of, uh, you know, out of this business, to, and, and to essentially not allow them to even compete. No, I look, I understand what they're, what they're suggesting is that they have an unfair advantage. But you know what? Here's what nobody ever considers. And, and I've talked about this in other shows. We are always in a situation where we are not at a level playing field. Even if we have certain rights that were guaranteed in treaties, even when we have certain rights that maybe protect us from uh, certain regulatory advantages or, or, or give us certain regulatory advantages, it still doesn't mean that we have reached a level playing field in terms of how we enter into an industry. Otherwise, there would be this burgeoning and, and tremendously large native um, you know, commercial enterprises that would that would have this, you know, this debilitating uh, um, competi competition advantage over the white people. And, and, it, and that doesn't exist. And, and in fact, again, when universities study this, they say, look, there's no major impact going to be uh, uh, occur because of the few 
and and the and the small scale native fishing operations that are really there to sustain a lifestyle that goes back to their culture that goes back thousands of years. That's what these Mi'kmaq fishermen are, are, are trying to do. They're trying to sustain and maintain something that has been a part of their culture since time immemorial. And this is what they're up against. They are up against this dramatic um, flare-up of, of white supremacy that, yeah, that, that's a part of Canadian culture. Look, we're going to take a break. When I come back, I want to talk about how this is being uh, felt by other Native territories and, and what other Native territories are doing to support the Mi'kmaq. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Hey, let me give a shout out to my uh, to my sponsors, to my supporters. I want to give a thanks to Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses. I want to thank Eric Eric White in ERW Enterprises and the folks at Grand River Enterprises uh, and all of you who from time to time make a contribution. I also want to remind people that we are on Patreon and you can go to patreon.com slash let's talk native and become one of our Patreon members. And in doing so, we will uh, we will provide our Patreon members a some exclusive content. In fact, you know, Jake and I are working working on it as we speak. And we're going to provide some of that exclusive content to our, our Patreon subscribers. Patreon is a way that you can support the show uh, in a, in a you know, and do it modestly. Do it something that will will give us you know five ten dollars a month that'll that'll help us replace equipment, build out our equipment inventory, and allow us to do more. So there are any number of ways that you can support the program, and Patreon is one of them. So uh, by, by all means, check out our Patreon site. Um, Look, this circumstance that, that's happening with the Mi'kmaq is, um, is something that our people have experienced before. And among um, you know, the issues that we've talked about here in the past has been the solidarity that Native people um, demonstrate when there's a conflict. And this, you know, you know one of the, the, the places that was highlighted was the Gunnazadage Oka crisis. And when our people were under siege over a white municipality trying to turn their nine-hole golf course into an 18-hole golf course on Mohawk lands, there were Native territories all over that supported um, our uh, our resistance. Um, The Wet'suwet'en people on the on the west coast stepped up. People uh, in in northern Canada stepped up. People in in Nova Scotia, the Mi'kmaq stepped up. In fact, uh, you know the Mi'kmaq sent um, you know several you know um, several dozen people down to Ganozadage and uh, and to Ganawage as well during the during that crisis. So we've seen this demonstration, and as a result of of the solidarity, we oftentimes feel 
not just an obligation, but a responsibility to demonstrate solidarity when our friends in other native territories are going through. So whether it was Standing Rock or back in, in January and February when uh, the Wet'suwet'en were, were facing uh, this, this pipeline that was being uh, proposed through their territory, it was some of our people, the Mohawks in Tendenega and other places in Gunawage, that that stopped railroad traffic and, and basically shut down the Canadian rail system be in solidarity. So as this thing is happening now uh, with the, with the Mi'kmaq in Gunawage or in, in Gunawage specifically, they launched a, a series of what what are being called rolling blockades where our people with, with vehicles are stopping traffic on some of the major thoroughfares that go, goes into Montreal. Keep in mind that in order to get into Montreal, you essentially, you know, off of many of the hi- major highways, you have to cross Mohawk territory, Gunawaga in particular. And so when we do these ro- rolling blockades, when we block the Pont Mercier bridge, when we do some of these things, it has a tremendous impact on the lives of, of Canadian citizens. So we feel compelled. We feel a sense of responsibility when some of this, when our brothers face this kind of overt racism and we know what it's like when, again, when we, we revisit back to 1990, the impacts that, um, uh, that our people in Gunawage felt, especially in Gunawage from the, the, you know, the racism, the burning effigies, the rock throwing, the, the assaults, all of this, the stuff that took place during the, the Gunawage slash Oka crisis. Our people knew what it was like to be on the receiving end of some of the most overt racism and, and white supremacy that, that anybody's ever experienced. I'm not, you know, look, I don't want to get into what, what do they call it? The oppression, oppression Olympics, but there's there's almost this this level of ignorance or a, a failure to acknowledge the racism that native people experience and we do experience it i mean it, it it's demonstrated in in ways that many other people don't necessarily see you know look we understand violence we understand when when people are um are murdered or if they're raped or, or assaulted or when they uh, you know when when their people are harassed in in, in public spaces but there's also, you know, other types of racism that Native people uniquely um, experience, and and you know, it's tied to some of the, the the mischaracterization of history, whether it's you know Columbus or mascots or or all these other things. But at the end of the day, it always comes back to this idea that there is a sense that whatever Native people have to experience at the hands of white people is somehow justified. You know, I've talked about this before. Many people, uh, you know, re- regardless of their, their, their political leanings, will acknowledge that the abuse of women is wrong. They'll acknowledge that, that slavery was, uh, was unjust and that it was wrong. But today, there are still people in the U.S. and Canada who think that what Native people experienced was not only necessary, but that it was natural. And the idea that Native people can still be uh, the, the, the subjects and, uh, of, of this overt racism. That's why we have missing and murdered indigenous women. It's why we have, you know, poverty levels on native territories that exceed what any other uh, people experience in the U S or Canada, unemployment rates at the, at the highest levels. This idea that what, what befalls native people is, is okay. And that the policies that 
drive poverty, that drive assimilation, that drives that tries to eliminate our distinction. Look, all of this this fishing issue, that's exactly what this is. This is an attempt to eliminate whatever distinction we have, and whether it's tied to our our moderate livelihoods or whether it's tied to our culture, tied to whatever our historical beliefs are, are tied to. They want to eliminate that. They say, no, you conform with Canada. You conform with Canadian law. No, you conform with U.S. law. There is still an effort to constantly assimilate us into their fabric, not to acknowledge our distinction, not to acknowledge that we have rights that predate white men being on the shores of our lands, white men fishing in our waters, hunting on our lands, taking our timber, occupying our land. We have rights not because you gave them to us, but because we predate your existence. Our culture predates your whatever culture you claim to have. Our systems of governance, our language, and our livelihoods, they predate yours. So there's nothing that you can do that comes in and says, okay, we're just going to take over your lives. Look, both the U.S. and Canada claim that the authority of their governments come from the consent of the governed. Well, that's fine, but we are not your governed. And I know this is tough. And, and, on, and frankly, on the Canadian side, oftentimes this is worse. In the U.S., I think people understand, at least many of the citizens understand, that we don't consider ourselves U.S. citizens. Now, I'm not saying all Native people take this position. But on the Canadian side, this is something that's more difficult. The, the act of assimilation has been, in many ways, much more aggressive. Even though there sometimes are things that accommodate the distinction of Native people, there is, it is clear that both the, the Indian Reorganization Act on the U.S. side and the Indian Act of Canada had, both had the same design, to subjugate Native people under U.S. and Canadian law. And this is problematic because the idea of having a treaty with us acknowledges that we are distinct from you, that we are not a part of you. And in fact, I mean, one of the things that, that is noteworthy, even going back to, to 1990 and the Gunnazadaga-Oka crisis, the idea that Canada could actually use its military against the Mohawk people shows that they looked at us as a foreign force, as a... As a as an outside threat. Most countries can't, can't U.S. and Canada, they can't use their military against their own people. The, the 1990 crisis clearly demonstrated that we are not Canadians, that we are not Americans, that we are a distinct people. And I realize that many Native people are indifferent about what that really means. And we get into a debate about voting and about census and about, you know, are we Canadians? Are we Americans? No, I, there are still people who, without having to actually take that specific stance, live their entire lives by defining our distinction. And these lobster fishermen, these Mi'kmaq that are, that are trying to maintain their cultural livelihood. There's there, these sustainable lives that have been a part of their culture for thousands of years. They aren't doing it to make a political stand. They aren't, do, they aren't fishing lobster to be rich. They are trying to support their families. They're trying to do the same thing that all peoples all over the planet try to do. They try to sustain their, themselves. They try to you know, so, support their families, raise their children. 
And they try to promote who they are, their distinction, their identities, their, their culture. This is what's under attack. This isn't just about attacking uh, you know, people pulling lobster out of the ocean. And it certainly isn't about protecting the environment or the ecosystem, none of that. This is about attacking distinction. This is, this is where I always have to remind people that assimilation is still genocide. It is not a kinder or more or gentler genocide. It is genocide. And when I hear people say, put words in front of the word genocide, like, oh, you mean economic genocide, or you mean cultural genocide, or you mean, you know, by putting those words in front of it, you're eliminating what genocide means. It means eliminating us as a distinct people. And any of these policies, I mean, even as they try to negotiate a settlement of this dispute, it's like, oh, well, maybe we'll come to terms with what rules Canada will allow the Mi'kmaq to, uh, you know, to, to fish under. Instead of saying, look, we are concerned about environmental issues. We are concerned. Let's do some studies. And if you're fishing outside of what we consider the season is, uh, is affecting the ecosystems, then we'll ask you to make recommendations on what you can. No, they're not doing that. They're saying, let's come up with some rules that Canada can impose on the Mi'kmaq that will, you know, in all likelihood affect not only their, their livelihoods, but their ways of life. I mean, this isn't about just livelihood is about money, right? It's about how, you know, how you, how you, um, support your family, but lifestyles has to do is a broader picture. It, it involves culture. It involves ceremony. It involves the history and relating to what you do today, how it relates to what the people uh, who came before you did and how you protect something going forward. So look, we oftentimes talk about seven generations and if the Mi'kmaq are, are not adequately supported here by other native peoples, what, st what stands to be lost is the future. This isn't about this year's catch. You know, these guys will, will, will take time out of their livelihoods to fight for this. Why? Because it's about the future. It's about what their children will be able to do. It's going to be about how the stories that are a part of, of every aspect of their lives will not just be stories of the past, but they will be stories that, that will, teach, will, be, will be teachable for the future. That's why maintaining our distinction, what, maintaining our identity is so important. Look, this isn't about necessarily about insurrection. This isn't about revolution. And it sure as hell isn't because we're trying to take over a country or an industry or, or try to hurt anybody. This is about us maintaining our identity, maintaining our distinction against what many people think are oftentimes insurmountable odds. When 200 people show up at a, uh, you know, at, at, at a building that only has two or three native people inside and a police force supporting and complicit with that, with the angry mob that sometimes can seem like an insurmountable force, but our people stand up to it and they've stood up to it. They stood up to it. Look, they've pushed back on the French. They've pushed back, pushed back on the English and we push back on the Canadians and we push back on the Americans as they continuously try to eliminate, eliminate us as distinct people. I know some people are going to try to reduce this thing down to the price of a lobster and whether 
somebody can buy a lobster out of season. But that's not what's at stake here. This is much bigger than this. And, and that's why today, even as the folks from where I'm from in Gunawage will continue to do these rolling blockades, I know they're meeting every day. They're, they're meeting today. As we speak right now, there, uh, there are people all over all over uh, talking about what they're going to do to support uh, the, the Mi'kmaq here. In fact, uh, again, the, the, um, Michael Sachs said he's getting calls from all over, all over uh, Canada, all over Turtle Island saying, when do you want us to send men? There are people offering to go there and, and to stand, not just stand with these guys, but to fight back. That's what native people are saying. When do you want our, when do you want people there? And, and, and whether to Michael Sachs' credit or to his criticism, depending on how you want to view it, he's saying, not yet. Let's, but what he said to the media, and he said it very clearly, if the Canadian government isn't going to fulfill its obligations and acknowledge our rights, if you're not going to, we're not asking for protection you know, against some invading force. We're asking for protection from you. If you're not prepared to hold your own people accountable, then we'll bring in the people that will. And there are people from all over, all over quote unquote Indian countries, from native territories all over the U.S. and Canada who are saying, just, just say when and we'll be there. And I got to tell you, this could turn into a much uglier event when our guys fight back than when they just take they're burning boats and they're burning vans and they're and they're stolen catch and they're destroyed traps and they're and they're burnt buildings. When our people start saying, nope, we're we're not talking about justice here. We're talking about equity. Because the problem is you think that you control what is and isn't justice. That's not justice to us. What what we're looking for is equity. We're looking for what is what is even. You know, I heard somebody ask the question, uh, Regan and I the other day asked, you know, at what point does, does justice cross in the line of vengeance and revenge? Well, <laughs> that's a good question because payback can sometimes feel more like equity. Payback can still, for, for us can feel more like justice. But payback is what many people say, oh, that's revenge. Well, I, I don't know if it's revenge. All I know is that Look, even in, in the, the, the Christian culture, they talk about eye for an eye. And look, we're not trying to be uh, vengeful. But if we don't push back, if, if, if somebody else's boat doesn't sink to the bottom of the, uh, of the harbor, then do they look at that as, as the right to continue to sink ours? Right back to day one. When all these, uh, these mobs of, 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 of white fishermen went out and started pulling up the lobster traps, they felt validated in doing that because the police let them. The police didn't try to stop them. They didn't warn them. They, they certainly didn't seize the traps that these guys were pulling up, that, and they knew they weren't theirs. They just allowed it to continue, and they became complicit in that. And the statements that came from those fishermen, the representatives from the fishermen said, look, we know we're doing right. You know how we knew we were doing right? Because the police watched us and they let us do it. They wouldn't have let us do it if, that, if what we we're doing was wrong. And you know what? <laughs> it's because the police didn't think what they were doing was wrong. And, and that's the problem. The courts don't think what they were doing is wrong. 
look, the, the Supreme Court may have ruled and their constitution may say, well, we've got to acknowledge these treaty rights. But they purposefully leave it, leave it somewhat nebulous. So it, it ends up being a, a mob rule scenario. And the crazy part is this is almost the definition of democracy. As long as the biggest groups get their way, that's considered democratic. I know people, people don't see it that way, right? They, they think, well, no, democracy means justice. No, it doesn't. Democracy means the majority gets to dictate to the minority. Well, look, <laughs> after our populations have been significantly reduced because of genocide, because of crimes against humanity, our humanity, it's easy for white people to, to tout this idea of democracy now as they sit as the majority. Look, 53% of Americans are, are white. The, the population on the Canadian side that's white is significantly more. So we are not protected by democracy. And we aren't protected by the rule of law that is created by this white democracy. That's the problem. That's why I say justice isn't what we're after. We're looking for equity. We're looking for fairness. And we are willing to fight for that equity. We're going to fight for what is ours. And what is ours isn't the tangible things you think it is. What is ours is our right to exist as distinct people. We have a right to exist as a free and independent people. Whether you think we do or not. And it's not something that you give to us or take from us. You can't take our freedom away. What happens is we either will continue to fight for that freedom or we will give up the fight. Or <laughs> this is the other thing that happens. Sometimes we live to fight another day. But don't think for a second that if you get over on us today, that 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 doesn't mean our future generations aren't going to stand back up and fight. I, again, I look, I, I oftentimes talk about Hawaii. Hawaii is a perfect example. Hawaii, the Hawaiian kingdom was stolen from the Hawaiian people by the United States. And for several generations, there wasn't much noise after that initial illegal occupation. But this generation of Hawaiians are, is finally saying, no, 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 we know. We know what the truth is. We know what you did was illegal. And we aren't standing for it. We're fighting back. So, look, you may have kept the, uh, the Hawaiian people silent for a while. You may keep Native people silent for a while. You may put us back on our heels for a while. But it doesn't mean that we've ever consented to your authority. We have not consented to your rules of law. We have not consented to subjugation by the United States or Canada. That's what's playing out in Mi'kmaq territory right now. This is a, this is violence. This is genocide. Look, it may not be massacres. It may not be this, the intentional spread of disease that, that, that Europeans have used in the past. But it is still mobs of white people that are trying to assert their will over our people, over a people who have been marginalized by violence, by disease, by, by poverty, and by location. I mean, the small amounts of land, the small amounts of water, the small amounts of resources that, that we continue to try to tap in to support our people is still under attack. Whether it's fishing lobster, whether it's you know you know whether whether it's hunting 
whether it's you know how what we try to protect our land and, and, and our environment, this is under constant attack by by the US, by Canada, by mobs of white people represent whether they are government officials or, or, or whether they are individuals just trying to profiteer off of our lands. Most of what native people have experienced were not governmental actions. They were racist actions of a mob. And, and, and that's what, that's what our history is. And what happens with government is governments try to justify it. Look, most of the lands that native people have lost was lost through fraud committed by individuals, not by military campaigns, not by the government proclaiming that they own our lands. I know we could talk about doctrine of Christian discovery, but most of the lands that native people lost was lost by individuals screwing our people, by individuals um, uh, defaulting on leases, defaulting on purchases, defaulting on all kinds of man, all manner in which they would occupy our lands, committing fraud like the annexation of Hawaii. This is being done sometimes by government, but oftentimes by mobs of white people. And even if it's by an individual white person, it's that individual white person is protected by a mob. It's protected by the police. It's protected by the courts. It's protected by their politicians, by their government. But most of what we have experienced in the most overt forms of racism has been white individuals that have inflicted that upon us, either through the theft of our land, our resources, the murdering of our women, the stealing of our children. It's individuals who do it. But those individuals are protected. They are protected by racist governments. They are protected by colonialism. They are protected by their so-called rule of law. Well, I'll say it again. There is no place in history, and Canada can talk about the Indian Act, they can talk about this treaty, that treaty, and all these other Canadian laws they've passed or whatever else. U.S. can talk about the same thing. The, the Citizenship Act, the Reorganization Act, they can talk about their, their amendments to their constitutions, but we have never consented to be subjugated by the U.S. or Canada or any other European power. That's just the bottom line. And because we haven't consented that, we are not, we have not provided our consent to be governed by you. We may sometimes have to take a, take a step back. On occasion, we have to live to fight another day. But that we will. So regardless of what happens with these few Mi'kmaq fishermen who are fighting for the right to their moderate livelihoods, we will continue this fight. We will continue the struggle and we will step up in any way that we can and we will do it at our time, in our time not yours. So that's the way, the way this thing is going to play out. But I'm, I got to tell you, we're going to keep, we're going to keep on this. I'm going to see if I can get, uh, uh, you know, somebody representing the Mi'kmaq to, to join me on a future show. And I want to go through much of this again, but I want you to hear their perspective. I want you to hear how they view their future, not just how they view the past. That, you know, that history gets rewritten by white people all the time. Our history is ours, but our future is ours as well. We will not have that future dictated to us uh, without our consent. That's just the position that we take as Ongwe Ongwe. I want to thank you for listening to the program um, and look forward to covering this story as it goes forward and as issues come, uh, you know, come before us. Thanks again. This is John Kane.
This is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.